Uh, first of all, I'd like to express my thanks to uh, Rick Herman and Jeffrey Parker and Alice Conklin for facilitating this invitation. And what follows is a sort of trial balloon on a new project, as Jeffrey mentioned, on peacemaking in 1919. And I'm delighted, really delighted, to have uh, the chance to float it here. Um, as you can tell from my biography, this is a big departure from my previous work, both geographically and methodologically. And I began getting my head into it by asking what I think are some pretty big questions about a very specific document coming out of the Paris Peace Conference. And the prize for guessing how it is I became interested in is very small indeed, because it, it, it's pretty self-evident. Um, I wanted to think about the American role at the conference, a subject on which I knew virtually nothing. And I became particularly intrigued by the Wilsonian imagination. How was it that Wilsonians thought the world worked? How did their notions of the proper structure of the post-war world make sense in their heads? The more I read about them, the more I became convinced that really they were not fools, nor I think, were they necessarily all that naive, naivete in any event being something more easily established after the fact. Rather, I think they believed uh, themselves to be living in exceptional times, at least the most exceptional since 1776, or another parallel I can think of would be 1848 or 1789, a time when the most basic issues of international relations, of sovereignty, and of political identity itself seemed up for grabs. So what I'm trying to, my, my presentation is about, in a nutshell, is trying to look at a specific variant of the Wilsonian imagination on its own terms. And I want to use a particular document to think about how um, participants in the Paris Peace Conference tried to reimagine sovereignty and international relations in the wake of the Great War. Now, the title of the lecture series um, the Empire History Lecture Series notwithstanding, the King Crane Commission report was not supposed to be about empire. It was supposed to be about alternatives to an alternative to empire, or perhaps better stated, what happens um, um, after empire. In March 1919, uh, the big four of uh, Woodrow Wilson, David Lloyd George, Georges Clemenceau, and Vittorio Orlando agreed to send an inter-allied commission to the Middle East to make recommendations about post-war mandates in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, to make a long story short, the French declined to send representatives, uh, fearing that the result would not favor their claims to what became Syria and Lebanon, uh, the British didn't send representatives because the French didn't send representatives, and the Italians, not for the first or the last time, fell out of the equation entirely. Um, after many weeks of toing and froing, Wilson sent an American delegation on its own, and this delegation had two co-chairs. One was Richard Crane, who was a Wilson fundraiser, a really a sort of wealthy foreign policy entrepreneur, who, among other things, had been a great patron of Thomas Masaryk in what became Czechoslovakia. Um, the money, the self-financing, came from Crane toilets, uh, which still very much exists. But that was that's where the Crane money came from. The other co-chair was Henry Churchill King, a Protestant theologian, a nationally known reformer in the field of Christian higher education, and yes, the president of Oberlin College. Um, the commission toured parts of the Middle East in June and July of 1919 and submitted its report on the 28th, 28th of August, 1919, just as Wilson was leaving on what became his ill-fated tour of the West to secure support for the League of Nations. In his diary, uh, another member of the commission, Professor Albert Leibier of the University of Illinois, wrote about a dinner uh, that, that the commission had just before it returned to Europe. 
And Leibier said at that dinner, Dr. King contributes the morality and I the territoriality of the report. And then King added, and Mr. Crane the congeniality. So my talk then is going to emphasize King's contribution and to read the report to some extent through King's eyes, not least because his papers are at Oberlin. So I began this project close to home. I also say I, have, I loved um, being able to go to the archives by going to the office, um, not something that happens much in my line of work. Um, and I want to read the report as an artifact testifying to the means of reimagining sovereignty in the Middle East. A, a vision of sovereignty and a vision of the Middle East closely allied to the Wilsonian vision, but not entirely reducible to it. And indeed, King was a part of a whole movement of Christian progressivism that predated Wilsonianism and had its own distinct roots. So what I want to do is reflect upon what happened in the report when King's vision of Christian progressivism literally sort of hit the ground in the Middle East. Well, what was King's version of Christian progressivism, and how did he see the role of Christianity in reshaping the world in general and the Ottoman Empire in particular? Well, Henry Churchill King was an academic theologian who got into administration early. He was president of Oberlin for 25 years, from 1902 to 1927. He was the last of the great preacher presidents of Oberlin who saw the role of president as pastor-in-chief. I guess nowadays it's kind of fundraiser-in-chief, but back then it would have been pastor-in-chief. I apologize for the short detour into Oberlin's theological history, but I think this vision of sovereignty in the Middle East just doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, otherwise. <clears throat> During King's presidency, Oberlin was endeavoring to refocus its evangelical bearings. It had been a center of abolitionism since the early 1830s, and to borrow and twist a bit Erez Manella's term, um, abolition was in some ways Oberlin's Wilsonian moment this period before the Civil War when Oberlin was right and much of the rest of the country was wrong. And it was a period in which the institution acquired the supply of moral capital that, to some, it has endeavored to live off ever since. Um, and so I think part of what this is about is, you know, kind of evangelical fervor after abolitionism. Um, now, with the abolition of slavery, of course, the community had to seek new directions for this fervor. Some founded in, in prohibition, others in missionary work. Um, both obviously had limitations, intrinsic limitations. It was, it was difficult to build either as a worthy successor to abolitionism as a cause. King supported both prohibition and, um, and missionary work, but looked for ways to modernize Oberlin's evangelical tradition and to make it relevant for the new century. Now, King was somebody who believed that divine revelation was continuous. It was not limited to the heroic early period of Christianity. And so that God's word properly interpreted in the here and now had profound implications for Christian life in the here and now. For example, when the Christian says in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, it's often taken as a call to submit to the divine will. In a way, King and this school of Christian progressivism read it in almost a diametrically opposite way, as a, as a call to action, as an imperative to carry out the will of the Lord uh, to the ends of the earth. The, uh, so that Christian progressives were expected to focus on righting the wrongs of this world, not just on rewards in the next one. 
Now, like Wilson, King believed that the Great War had moral causes and moral solutions and maintained a very Protestant fixation on individuals, on individual choices, and on individual responsibilities. And that like, and, and to some extent, I think the nation is almost the individual writ large with, with quite analogous kinds of choices. Um, like individuals, nations operated in a state of moral freedom in which they could make good choices or bad. And um, these individuals could combine in nations in healthy or pathological ways so that, that the national community is almost the individual writ large. Now, in June 1917, in his baccalaureate sermon to the graduating class, King argued that Germany had neglected the spiritual welfare uh, of the individual in favor of the base instincts of the collectivity. He said, building on Kant and Hegel, she, that is Germany, exalted the associated life above the personal in such a way as to make the state supreme, itself a source of the law, and therefore above all moral obligation. So the collectivity, this kind of bad or pathological collectivity, had become an end in itself, institutionalized in the reactionary state that characterized the central powers, this with, of course, disastrous consequences for the world community. And this fixation on the, on the state as its own source of morality had led directly to the horrors of the Great War. As he had told the graduating class one year earlier in 1916, it is not by accident that the most terrible expressions of hatred and of unmeasured arrogance and that the most ruthless destruction of non-combatants, including the unspeakable Armenian massacre, have come from those powers that have more or less definitively avowed this philosophy of the state, that is, the state as the source of, of, of morality. Now, morally speaking, King saw the Ottoman Empire and Germany as more or less the same thing. The problem was not Islam. The problem was the worship of the state. In fact, King is practically silent on Islam in all of his um, um, writings, be they theological or, or political. I mean, what I infer for this, that I think for somebody like King, Islam was no more itself a problem than any other form of incorrect belief, such as atheism or Catholicism. Now, Christian progressives such as King saw democratic values and Christian values as the same thing. So the Christianity lay at the heart of modern civilization in its best sense. Christianity was kind of the instrument through which God had revealed certain universal truths, such as freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, etc., etc. So that to King and progressive Christians like King, Democracy and God's kingdom were two different ways of saying the same thing. So that the distinction between religious and secular authority was, was one of nomenclature. Um, so that in other words, when one said democracy, the progressive Christians of this world heard God's kingdom. Consequently, it was okay to use a secularized language because the Christian would be expected to hear God's kingdom. Okay. Thought of in this way, the victory of 1918 was both the victory of democracy and of Christianity, was both a gift of God and a call to action. Now, the world did not have to become Christian, at least not right away. And I think King was one of the people who thought um, that you know, whether the world becomes Christian or not, that's really kind of, that's going to happen on God's timetable. That doesn't really, you know, it's fine to go now kind of hoe the fields of conversion in China, but those plants are going to take a long time to grow. That's really kind of up to God. It's up to Christians to act in decisive ways 
uh, in this world. Okay? In other words, the world didn't have to become Christian, at least not right away. But it was up to Christians as evangelists of democracy to remake the world. Now, this was kind of God's call to action. Now, so the, the victory, in this sense, was its own form of divine revelation. As he wrote in a pamphlet for demobilizing American soldiers in March of 1919, I quote, If millions of men have awakened to a new sense of the supremacy of intangible values, if they have risen to the demands of cooperative tasks unmatched in history, if they have shown an unbelievable capacity for sacrifice, then in all this, there is involved a new revelation of common men that should also mean a new faith in God and his universe. While King was already in Paris in the spring of 1919, um, he was in charge of uh, the religious affairs office of the YMCA. For someone who saw the world and someone who looked at the world as he did, uh, one can well imagine his enthusiasm for joining President Wilson's commission to the Middle East, particularly if the alternative was returning to faculty meetings at Oberlin. So he was he was out of there. And actually, uh, uh, the correspondence is really quite interesting because his lieutenant at Oberlin is saying, my God, the war has changed everything. The students want to dance. They want to smoke. They want to do, you know, God knows what. And you've got to come back. You've got to come back. And he's saying, I know President Wilson is called. You, know, you, you deal with it back there. Um, anyway, uh, well, how then was this Christian progressive Wilsonian vision applied to the post-Ottoman Middle East? Well, the war ended, as I'm sure some of you, many of you know, uh, with the Allies swearing hand on heart that the future of the Middle East lay with democracy. Point 12 of Wilson's 14 points of January 1918 had stated rather vaguely, and I quote, that the other nationalities which are now under Turkish rule should be assured an undoubted security of life and absolutely unmolested opportunity of autonomous development. Um, It didn't call in so many words for the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, nor did it call for the breakup of the, in so many words, for the Habsburg Empire. I mean, I guess one could infer that 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 would logically follow. But it didn't, in so many words, call for the breakup of the Ottoman Empire. The British and the French, for their part, went a step further in the Anglo-French Declaration of the 7th of November, 1918, just four days before the armistice on the Western Front. In a way, they're almost kind of out-Wilsoning Wilson at this point. Uh, Britain and France now declared that they had intervened in the Middle East only to achieve, and I quote, the complete and final liberation of peoples who have for so long been oppressed by the Turks and the setting up of national governments deriving their authority from the free exercise of the initiative and choice of the indigenous population. Now, the King Crane Report harped incessantly on the, on the uh, fr- uh, um, Anglo-French Declaration. And the goal seemed clear, that the people would become sovereign in the post-Ottoman Middle East. That was the key. That was the linchpin. Um, so, so then, um, sovereignty uh, requires institutions. And it was accepted in the King Crane Report that in this time and in this place, the relevant institution was the mandate. But just what a mandate was was something that that, uh, peacemakers argued about for some time before, uh, during, and after the writing of the King Crane Commission report. Uh, The commission had already left for the Middle East by the time the Versailles Treaty was signed on the 28th of June, 1919. Uh, But the League of Nations Covenant had been approved by the fifth plenary session of the Peace Conference on the 28th of, of April. Uh, the King Crane Commission was presumably well familiar with its contents, above all, Article 22, which covered mandates. 
in which mandates were defined as the institutional guardians of, quote, a sacred trust of civilization, their goal being to guide uh, former peoples, former subject peoples, to independence. But exactly who or what the interim sovereign was involved a question that bedeviled international lawyers, uh, bedeviled politicians, bedeviled diplomats, bedeviled what in fact became colonial administrators for many years to come. Where was sovereignty located? Was it the League? Was it the mandatory state? Or was it what? Uh, what was it? Uh, the commission itself did not, did not engage in this critical but kind of legalistic philosophical um, um, conversation. Its issues were those of morality and those of territoriality. And what it tried to do, I would argue, was build popular sovereignty in the Middle East from the ground up, based in this certain idea of the political individual. So if the, if the future of the Middle East lay with the people as sovereign, well, it matters quite a bit who the people are, hence the central question of my talk, who gets to be a people. And the case I want to make is that peoples were determined and categorized on moral grounds, and that popular sovereignty was this notion of individual self-sovereignty writ large, and that the whole scheme revolved a kind of around a kind of universalized civic subject, a kind of coded version of the socially engaged Christian that King had been preaching for years before the war. So the mandates would be to be assigned and boundaries drawn according to conditions that would foster the development of this particular kind of civic subject. Now, the linchpin of the post-war Middle East in kind of territorial terms as, as imagined by the King Crane Commission involved what you could call a kind of greater Syria or almost maximalist Syria under an American mandate a Syria that would comprise present-day Syria plus present-day Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Palestine. So Syria, about as far as you can imagine Syria going. This greater Syria was a moral necessity because of what real estate agents call location, location, location. And it was uh, supposed to be part of what the report referred to as that land bridge uh, uniting Europe, Asia, and Africa. Greater Syria, in this sense, was not unlike the newborn Czechoslovakia, an entity, a, a territory that could instantly and effortlessly detach itself from the defeated central power of which it had been a part. And the idea was that Syria, so construed and Syria properly imagined and properly brought into being, could serve as a beacon for the democratic transformation of the Middle East not the last time such an argument would be made by Americans. Um, he, the, the report contended, Syria has a place of such strategic importance politically and commercially and from the point of view of world civilization as also to make it imperative that the settlement brought about should be so just as to give the promise of permanently good results for the whole cause of the development of a righteous civilization in the world. So that the task at hand in this proposed mandate for this greater Syria involved first creating Syria in a territorial sense, then creating Syrians. And it, at the writing of the report, the authors, I think, suggested the Syrians were not so much a people yet as a collection of inhabitants of a strategic geographical space. 
Yet they had certain commonalities that, that gave them the, the, the preconditions of peoplehood, if you will, or the preconditions of nationality. Most of them spoke Arabic, and the, the document used the term race very sparingly, but, but seemed to suggest that the fact that they spoke Arabic made them all of the same race. Um, and, but it was not unaware that there were various minorities um, throughout the region, uh, particularly Christian and Jews, which for centuries had lived together peaceably enough, even under those wicked um, Turks. Above all, these future Syrians had the Emir Faisal, who completely charmed um, um, Henry Churchill King, as he did various other allied officials as well. Um, and so taken was the commission with Faisal uh, that they were willing to overlook the inconvenient anomaly of a hereditary monarch building a beacon of democracy in the Middle East. They argued, a constitutional monarchy along democratic lines seems naturally adapted to the Arabs with their long training under tribal conditions and with their respect for chiefs, unquote. So in this future Syria, Education would be a priority from the outset. And the authors had this unbounded liberal and quite Protestant faith in education as the solution to the problem of your choice. They continued, in clear recognition of the imperative necessity of education for the citizens of a democratic state and for the development of a sound national spirit, the systematic cultivation of national spirit is particularly required in Syria which has only recently come to self-consciousness. And I think you can see in this a sort of narrative to independence. Syria would exist as a demarcated geographical space, as a mandate. Syria would become an independent nation when enough Syrians had been created to run it. So you first create this mandate Syria, you educate them into becoming Syrian, and when you you reach sort of a critical mass, then Syria becomes an independent um, um, nation. Now, obviously, this notion of a greater Syria precluded the notion of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. This, despite the rather vague promises of the Balfour Declaration of the 2nd of November, 1917, and the King-Crane Commission's very pointed rejection of the very idea of a Jewish homeland in Palestine remains, as far as I can tell, its best known and its most controversial um, conclusion. The commissioners apparently made up their minds early as they indicated in a telegram to President Wilson on June 12th, a mere two days before they arrived in the Middle East. I quote, Here the older inhabitants, both Muslim and Christian, take united and most hostile attitude toward any extensive Jewish immigration or toward any effort to establish Jewish sovereignty over them. I doubt if any British or American official here believes it is possible to carry out the Zionist program except through the support of a large army. Unquote. The report itself recommended that, quote, Jewish immigration should be definitely limited and the project of making Palestine a distinctly Jewish commonwealth uh, should, be, should be given up. Well, what then was the status of Jews in the Middle East? Were the Jews a people? Were they not? Um, um, if they were a people, how did they differ from the still-to-be-created Syrians in ways that meant that the Syrians deserved a homeland, the Syrians deserved a nation, and the Jews did not? What was the difference between these Syrians and these Jews? Well, the report didn't really venture an explicit opinion as to whether the Jews were a people or not. Generally speaking, the report used the term Zionists to refer to those presently advocating a Jewish homeland. Uh, it used the term the Jews 
uh, to refer to the present Jewish inhabitants of Palestine and Jews elsewhere who might like to relocate to, to Palestine. And the report was much more hostile toward people it called Zionists than to uh, the Jews as, as such. Indeed, the, the report claimed, quote, a deep sense of sympathy for the Jewish cause, unquote, I guess as long as the cause was not a Jewish homeland in, in, in Palestine. So that setting up, setting up a Jewish homeland by force, the report argued, was not just bad policy, but was morally indefensible. On, and on, on perfectly Wilsonian grounds, that nine-tenths of the inhabitants did not want there to be a Jewish state there. And surprisingly, and perhaps oddly, given how seriously somebody like Henry Churchill King took his Bible, um, the report argued that, that ancient scripture conferred no legitimacy whatsoever on present-day Zionism. I quote, uh, for the initial claim often submitted by Zionist representatives that they, that they have a right to Palestine based on the occupation of 2,000 years ago can hardly be seriously considered, unquote. Um, um, in other words, the authors did not consider the Jews a people or at any rate a Middle Eastern people. And the explanation is, is stated in so many words in a confidential annex to the report. Most of actually, most of this, this confidential annex was an explanation of how, well, that we didn't really see anything that the British didn't want us to see because they were the ones leading us around everywhere and perhaps this informed our biases. But, but it did, it did explain, uh, um, a little more overtly a, a notion of who the Jews were. Um, and, and what's in this annex is that the notion that with the diaspora, Judaism became a religion rather than a nationality. And that consequently, a Jewish homeland in Palestine made no more sense than a Catholic homeland, a Methodist homeland, or a Congregationalist homeland. Right. Yet, so, you know, look at it in this way. The Jews weren't really a people. They were adherents to a religion. Yet the Jews looked a great deal like a unitary people when it came to the issue of protecting holy sites, um, something that the report commented on at, at, at some length. I quote, the places which are most sacred to Christians, those having to do with Jesus, which are also sacred to Muslims, and are not only not sacred to Jews, but are abhorrent to them. It is simply impossible under those circumstances for Muslims and Jews to feel satisfied to have these places in Jewish hands or under the custody of Jews, unquote. Now, it should be noted that what you could perhaps charitably describe as this hostile suspicion of Jews as protectors of holy sites did not transfer to Muslims or Christians protecting Jewish sites. So that there was a suspicion of Jews protecting holy sites that, that, that didn't you know, they didn't apply to other uh, um, people of other faiths protecting Jewish sites. Yet the report nowhere advocated the expulsion of Jews already in Palestine. Indeed, the report did not advocate the forced removal of anybody, uh, not even in Anatolia, not even in a projected um, um, Armenia. Rather, the Jews of the Middle East should content themselves with becoming Syrian, uh, as Jews had contented themselves with becoming British or French or American. And its solution to the issue of the holy sites was that there would be an interfaith commission that would, would be charged with regulating these things, I think working for the League of Nations uh, on which Jews would be, would be represented. Now, it's worth noting that although its conclusions on Palestine are probably its best known, um, the King Crane Commission report is actually far more passionate on the Armenian question 
than it is on the Palestinian question. And this is sort of ironic in the sense that the, the arguments made in favor of Armenian nationhood would parallel some of those made for the creation of Israel uh, some 30 years later. And it should be noted the commission never got anywhere near Armenia in its travels. It, it stopped in Istanbul, maybe one other place in Turkey, and, and um, the, you know, what became Syria, pa- uh, Palestine, and, and, and Lebanon. It never got anywhere near Armenia. Yet it had very impassioned um, conclusions on Armenia. Now, Armenia presented problems of nation building that were, in some respects, the inverse of those in building Syria. Armenians, they maintained, uh, already existed as a people with their own distinct language and, perhaps not coincidentally, their own uh, variant of Christian faith. The problem, rather, was one of territoriality. You had a people, and the issue was now finding a territory uh, uh, suitable for that people. Uh, yet, at the time when the commission did its work, quote, the territory of this future Armenia was not yet set off, nor its boundaries even approximately known. Uh, the Armenians were not largely present in any of the territory to be assigned, well, because the Turks had relocated and killed many, many hundreds of thousands of them. Um, now, what gave the Armenians a certain status as a people and what gave them the right to an Armenian state was a uh, a shared experience of massacre at the hands of the Ottoman Empire, what we would now call trauma, a shared traumatic experience, which conferred a kind of peopledom on them. I quote, the Armenians have surely earned the right by their suffering, their endurance, their loyalty to principles, their unbroken spirit and ambition, and their demonstrated industry, ability, and self-reliance to look forward to a national life of their own. History, in other words, had conferred uh, upon the Armenians kind of the status of people, of a people, and the right to uh, a state, and indeed had made this state a moral necessity. Uh, but it was concluded the Armenians were still in a very vulnerable state, and they could only be assured safety in this independent state with a long period of protection from a great power, preferably the United States. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this specifically. Basically, in a nutshell, what the report called for was American mandates everywhere, from Turkey to to what became from Anatolia to what what became Mesopotamia. The concept was uh, ex- excluding Egypt, but but basically most of the modern Middle East was supposed to come under an American mandate. Uh, now, um, in, in Syria, the goal was, was, was to create a Syrian people in Armenia, an Armenian territory, because the Armenian people uh, already existed. But the Armenian solution then, and this is kind of the rousing conclusion of the report, it's kind of the, the um, smallest of a series of, of, of concentric circles that would result in nothing less than the reconfiguration of international relations themselves. Solving the problem of Armenia, the report argued, was inextricably linked to uh, solving the problem of Turkey itself. And after all, uh, alongside Syria, Turkey was the other part of that land bridge joining Europe, Asia, and Africa. And of course, you know, these, were, these people were Christians. No nation and no people ought to be beyond redemption, ought to be beyond forgiveness. Indeed, the report argued, uh, and this is, this is the kind of thing that is, that is kind of almost chapter and verse out of King's sermons. There are whole chapters of the King Crane Commission report that are very closely linked to his sermons. He argued, are there not priceless oriental values, grateful, gratefully to be recognized and sedulously to be, to be preserved, they ask rhetorically. Um, essentially, Turkey proper was to be partitioned into three mandates, 
Constantinople, um, kind of the rest of Anatolia and Armenia. And someone, again, preferably the Americans, would, would run Anatolia as kind of a tough love mandate, uh, certainly under you know, military occupation, uh, until Turkish redemption was achieved. And of course, implicit in all this was a massive military commitment on the part of, of, of the United States. But so, so the, the innermost circle is Armenia. The next circle is Turkey. But, but solving the problem of Turkey was, was inextricably linked to solving the problem of great power politics itself. And that the post-war Turkey needed rescue, not just from what the report thought of as this oriental worship of the state, but also from occidental mental uh, meddling. And the report is haunted. It's one of the most interesting aspects. The report is haunted by the sense of, of waning idealism and by the fragility of what Eros Manila called this Wilsonian moment, that, that, that time is really not on the side of, of, of reconfiguring the world, that God had you know, opened the window, but, but the window was closing fast, and that the responsibility for that were, were uh, the people who were, who were charged with making peace. Right. Um, and, and as I noted, long passages are, are described, uh, describe the, the perils of the present historical moment, really taking, taking more or less chapter and verse from his uh, King's pamphlets and his sermons. Um, now, according to, just to, to wrap this up, um, uh, according to um, uh, the report um, and, and according to this version of the Wilsonian imagination, the United States had the moral obligation to kind of reference Carl Schmidt in passing to determine the exception in the Middle East. And the reason for this and what gave the Americans this kind of authority was that it, it already comprised the building block of this righteous new world order, the self-sovereign citizen. I don't think it, it was under any illusion that the American national community was perfect, but that the self-sovereign citizen as the, as the building block of the national community existed there and existed there better than it did anywhere else. I think one thing the Wilsonians did not do was irony and, and that they saw that, that, that this, there was nothing American about this whatsoever. This was simply, it's almost um, a role that is analogous to that of the French in the French Revolution. That, that this is not French. We are simply the, the, the bearers of these universal truths that have been, you know, kind of come to human, come humanity's way. Okay, um, so it's it's not a um, a document that really does uh, irony, um, um, and. Um, so, so in America, you had this community, you had uh, at least this notion of the self-sovereign citizen. Um, yet while this gift, uh, while this, this, this notion of the self-sovereign citizen was in some sense God-given, it had to be maintained through constant engagement. It was really sort of this, this use it or lose it kind of idea of, of, of citizenship. And this engagement was at its heart pedagogical and, and, and carried with it this imperative to explore this notion of American slash universal kind of political virtue to the rest of the world. Now, to backtrack from this kind of philosophical angle, uh, uh, nearly 90 years later, what's so striking about this report is its call for the vast expansion of American power and, in effect, of boots on the ground precisely at the moment when the actual prospect of doing so seemed less and less likely by the day. 
And I think these people were well enough informed of, of, of day-to-day events in American politics that, that, that um, um, you know, the prestige of Wilson was waning, the idea of the League was getting into more and more trouble. And besides, they were back in America by the time the League fight was really becoming, becoming its most ferocious. And it's curious that it called for, for such a utopian vision uh, um, when its when its uh, actual feasibility seemed to diminish by the day, um, no doubt the report still envisaged American participation in the League of Nations. Uh, not a ridiculous prospect in August of 1919. It was certainly in trouble, but it, you couldn't really take it for granted that the United States would not be joining the League of Nations in August 1919. And I think the idea was that participation in the League would ipso facto carry with it an expansion of American uh, responsibility, something its opponents understood very well. You couldn't, it was going to be difficult to join the league a little bit. You were either in or, or you were out. And that was certainly uh, the way Wilson did everything he could to kind of structure the debate around the league. But in the end, and this is where I'm going to finish this, the report envisaged this new role for the United States, not because it was realistic, but because it was morally necessary. And that's what I think joins the kind of, you know, King who'd been preaching for years at Oberlin to, uh, uh, to, the, to the King who co-authored the King-Crane Commission report. It was, this, uh, it was this cause that, you know, not just for you know, this obscure college in northeastern Ohio, but, 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 but this cause for the nation, this cause for the world that could be the worthy successor to abolitionism. And I think it's, it's as this kind of intellectual exercise and the interaction of morality and territoriality and and you know what makes a civic subject a civic subject that I think it's still it's still worth consulting and you know I had a good time with it on those terms so um, um, I'll leave it there and I'd be happy to take any questions that you have so uh, thank you for coming and thank you for listening.